Staples Center. Lakers. That's where the Lakers went? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I used to live like a block away from Staples Center. It's actually kind of sick because we could just like, you know, the the, the uh, StubHub trick. Oh, yeah. StubHub trick rules. You just like buy the cheapest tickets. You know, they're like eight bucks. Yeah, exactly. And then you just like sit down in your seat. And then after like five minutes, you just walk mm-hmm. to a seat that you see is empty. And you sit there. Oh, man, taught me that one. Great trick. Parody, satire. <laughs> Minecraft. We're at Cole's house this time. It's, it was loud at the studio last time, so we thought it'd be easier. Yeah, you might hear in the first episode some sketchy... Uh, some sketchy sounding audio that was the result of trying to take away the sound of drumming in the background. Because uh, other bands practiced there, including world famous rock and rollers, the OCs and Ty Seagal. Oh, yeah. Respect. They practice so loud. Yeah. It was like when Bailey and I were walking down the hall, it was like being at a show where you have to yell in the person's <laughs> ear. Sounds th- good, though. I think that's what we sound like, too, though. I'm sure. Yeah. Not anymore because we're doing the amp lower amp volume and stuff for recording but mm. definitely like when we first got into the space and we were just like playing the older songs mm-hmm. it was loud as fuck yeah it's cool <clears throat> remember the dude at the old space who like had a, his workshop across the hall mm-hmm. and he was like yeah i hate listening to all the bands it's the worst thing about this but you guys kick ass <laughs> yeah yeah he was like does your band have vocals oh yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, they just can't hear him. Well, also, like, the the thing that bothers me the most about, like, the the cliche, like, practice space band is that it's kind of, like, like masturbatory, like someone's soloing, yeah. you know? And our music is just, like, yeah, totally. more of a wall. So it's easier to just, like, internalize or something. Do you guys find that the thing you hear the most through the walls at the practice space is covers? How many hmm. cover bands... Are there or what are they? What are they maybe doing? They're just like having fun, like yeah, just like staying, staying. I, um, I definitely think limber. a lot of like like wedding cover bands practice at those practice spaces. I don't probably, think, I don't think anybody's having Black Flag at their wedding. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and and less so now because there's like there aren't like public events. But I've definitely heard people practicing like you know standard pop songs. Yeah. you know. I mean, who knows? When when we got married, you know, the wedding band sent the playlist. And like, you can pay an extra couple hundred bucks and they'll learn any song. Mm-hmm. And you can just like s- clearly tell, you know, from the list of songs, which ones were added by people and they just put it on their repertoire. Oh, You know, right. it would just be like all these like classic, you know, Prince songs and stuff. And then it would be like, you know. Britney Spears Toxic. Well, that one is like. I feel like that's a, that's a modern, modern classic. Oh. Yeah. It would just, you know, be like 
a song from like you know the, the Fault in Our Stars or something like mm-hmm. that. I was watching YouTube. There's this uh, series on YouTube called like it's not like coffee coffee break uh, history or something, but it's like a condensed like 101 history YouTube. And I was watching it for a while when I first moved into my new place and I was painting. And after a while, the guy who hosts it was like, yeah, I was uh, learning about this a lot when I wrote The Fault in Our Stars. And I was like, what? And it turns out this guy was like massively popular on YouTube is also the author of The Fault in Our Stars. And he also wrote Hmm. that, um, I think he wrote Looking for Alaska or some other book that also just got made into a movie. Right, yeah. He's just like very multi-talented. Yeah, he's a good, like that history YouTube is like a really good channel. For Beast. Yeah, I know. Like you'd think that like he would like chill out after he made like an incredibly successful novel that got turned into a movie but he's also like hustling a youtube channel <laughs> i mean it's just like us hugely successful band yeah. now hustling a podcast yeah, we could, i mean we could just retire and buy an island if we wanted to but instead yeah we just don't feel like it yeah. we just can't stop working it, you yeah know, sometimes you just got to go to a, a a private island to remember what's important in life <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of places we could go from there, but I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a reference to the Kim Kardashian birthday yeah. party, but I feel like by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be like three days old news and nobody cares. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't even know what that news is, but. They just like, she was like, I surprised my closest circle with a trip to an island just to pretend things were normal for a moment. And it's God. like, all right, normal. Yeah. Um, You haven't lived here that long right it's two months or something yeah i just moved you can probably hear the domestic bliss <laughs> just resonating through the um yeah we we moved out of the um extremely cool neighborhood that we used to live in and um moved out live. to the literal yeah where, where you still live and bailey still lives um we're in coming to you live from the suburbs of east pasadena um and yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it would be cool to just like, you know, give a little home life update because we've all been just kind of, you know, moving around and, and um, you know, finding finding our, our footing in a place where we have to be locked inside all the, all the time. Colin, you just moved too, eh? Yeah, I also moved to the suburbs, Glendale. But like... It's not the suburbs. Huh? <laughs> Glendale's a suburb of LA. Yeah, but you moved five minutes from your old house. Well, yeah, I moved. I yeah, I moved to this neighborhood called Adams Hill, and it's like, it's like equally close to everything that I do. Yeah, but it's still technically in the suburbs, I guess. Like a lot of people, friends of mine who like grew up here. If I mention that I live in Glendale, they're like, "Oh wow, you know, you sold out or something." Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But it's really so close. The like, I don't know, LA is so like spread out and like there aren't really like dividing lines of neighborhoods and stuff so it never really feel like you feel outside of LA mm-hmm. but just because you have to be on the freeway for so long otherwise it like you know when you bop around different neighborhoods it just feels like you're in a different area mm-hmm. of the sprawl I often forget too that like most of LA like we even like in Highland Park is like the most eastern part yeah. of LA that you can get while still being in LA mm-hmm. yeah I used to walk to Glendale from the old rehearsal studio. Yeah. I guess that was Glasgow Park, but same idea. 
Yeah. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I feel like my whole life I had all these ideas of what LA was and it was just in my head was just West side LA, Mm -hmm. you know, like Hollywood and shit. And I was like, this place sucks. Right. Mm -hmm. That was my impression too. It was just like, I don't like LA. Yeah. And it was like, oh, this is a massive city. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like size-wise and mm-hmm. population-wise, it's just a gigantic, sprawling fucking monstrosity. Bailey, you're at Colin's old spot. Yeah, um, yeah. Colin moved out, and so I'm temporarily in his old spot, which he lived for, what, like two years? Yeah, more than two years. Right. That was the first Since place the I Ariel moved tour. into. Yeah, we were on tour with Ariel Pink, and this girl, Jillian, was touring with them, and... I mentioned that I was moving. She was like, oh, I have a room. And like the novelty of not having to look for an apartment while moving to a new place was like so amazing to me. And then and then we were just touring on and off for so long that it never made sense to like look for another spot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I like that spot. It's, it's weird. It's funky. Yeah, it's definitely unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's got that outdoor area that you hooked up pretty yeah. well, but then it kind of grew back. And so I've been doing a little bit, but just last, or no, two nights ago, I went for a walk and somebody had thrown out one of those big umbrellas, you know, like the shade umbrellas. Oh, really? But like a big one. And so I was like, all right, I got to do this. And I just like jacked it up. Thing was like 60, 70 pounds. And I'm carrying it like a, like a, what are those poles that people jump? Like the pole vault? Oh, yeah. You yeah. know how they run with the joint? Yeah. Uh, that's how I was walking down the street at like one in the morning with this thing. It was as wider than a car. And I'm just walking down like, I hope nobody comes. Um, but it's so sick. That's it, tight. Yeah. Cause that, the front yard, like patio area is for some reason just so hot during yeah, it's the day. The, sun, the sun's out. Yeah. The sun hits it until it sets like yeah. from like one o'clock or and something. It's also just like a heat box, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. surrounded by concrete and mm-hmm. the house itself on all sides. So it's just, it, it was crazy. You know, we lived a block away from each other and your house would be 20 degrees hotter. Every yeah. You single would time. come over with like a hoodie. Yeah. And then immediately start sweating. I was in like shorts <laughs> and a tank top or something. Yeah. It's nice. I've been working outside since I got the umbrella. Yeah. Even before that, I had like a makeshift one with like a broken, uh, what do they call it, like a broom handle with a bed sheet. Mm-hmm. Carrying um, on the household tradition of working outside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now that it's getting cooler, like during like the fall and winter and even like early spring too, I would just be out there like all day. It's a really nice, it's a nice spot. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, your garden's not looking so hot. Yeah, I figured. Um, That's okay, though. Specifically that one plant. The weed plant? <laughs> Why didn't you harvest it? I did. Oh, you did? Yeah, and then I fucking... Someone was like, put it in a jar. But I didn't... You're supposed to let it dry. dry it first. Yeah. yeah, and so they like got moldy. But I, oh. I saved it a little bit. The mold was, fucks you up extra hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, it's still fine. <laughs> I think it's probably still fine. And also I was I was thinking about I was like really bummed out because like letting a plant go to waste is just a bummer in general. Yeah, it took a long time to grow. It took a long time, but it was pretty easy. But in, in any case, like I was looking at the weed and I was like, man, this sucks. But then I thought about probably a lot of the weed I smoked in high school was like way worse. Yeah. And more fucked up than yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. It was probably like same quality to begin with, but then sat in like a backpack for Two yeah, years or something. exactly. Yeah, a sweaty backpack. The Dive Podcast. So, what's going on at your house, Ben? 
Well, we're we're looking for a new spot. We have a very small one bedroom apartment with two dogs. And uh my lovely fiance Katrina started this business because um just like the music industry, her industry collapsed as well because her job was touching people's faces, <laughs> which is not allowed right now. Yeah, it's <laughs> tough. <laughs> um, so she started this textile business where she's like dyeing fabrics, which Beautiful. is really cool. Yeah, they're they're great. Uh, and But it's just like a lot for our little house. We don't even really have a yard. And you have to use the washer and dryer a bunch, which we share with our whole building. So it's... It's a little chaotic, but it's a vibe. But it's, uh, you can check them out at uh, sister underscore Suki on Instagram. You know if what you, you did? It. You're speaking to a client right here. Yeah, we just delivered uh, some sheets for, for Cole and Danielle. They do look really nice. Yeah, everything's looking really good. I'm proud. But uh, speaking of Instagram. <laughs> wow. You like that? <laughs> I was looking at Instagram, as one does, scrolling through a feed mindlessly. I follow some meme pages. You guys familiar with these things called memes? Yeah, I know about that. Richard Dawkins? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, <laughs> what was that book? Uh, the, the Selfish Gene. Mm-hmm. But I was uh, looking at this one. It was just some stupid meme. And then all the comments were like, bro, like you didn't like give me credit for this meme. Or like, you steal memes. You're not funny. And I was like, I mean, isn't the point of memes to steal? Like you're stealing an image and then putting text on it. And then also it just gets shared freely. 99% of the time there's zero money involved. It's like the attention economy. Like, how do you guys feel about stealing memes? Is that even something you can steal? I think like there's that like Know Your Meme website. Yeah. That is like the Wikipedia of memes or whatever. And like sometimes it'll be like this person created it, but it'll a lot of times it's like username, like someone's like Reddit username yeah. is what gets credit. It's not like anyone's like getting a book deal from a meme, unless it was like what like, was the dude Gary. like Harlem Shake <laughs> that made Harlem Shake Bauer. No, it's Bauer, but the guy who made the um the dance craze is that dude. Uh, what's his name? He was Filthy Frank. And now he's, do you know what his name is? No he's clue. an R&B dude. He's like a really, really famous musician now. Mm-hmm. And it all started from this like meme that he made, basically. Mm. That's how he initially got famous. So, but like in that, in that regard, like you can still capitalize off of like creating content without like having it like copyrighted or something. Yeah. I think it's like ridiculous to expect credit, you know? But like so much these days a lot of uh kind of exploitative 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 mm-hmm. business practices involve um giving people exposure bucks right you know, really? rather than actual bucks yeah, yeah like exactly. the fucking um, um pierre bourdieu like uh two-faced economy of music there's like you know there's like i just did a reading group about this which is why i'm talking about it but um you know, there's like the the monetary economy and then there's this like other economy that they call the gift economy. And it's, you know, it can take all these different forms and like the cultural capital side of it is just this like really difficult one to process because so, you know, it's like the classic thing when you're a new band, they're like, yeah, play 
this show, like we're not going to pay you, but like the exposure, like the yeah. cultural capital. Mm-hmm. And it's just like such a fucked up and exploitative practice. It is. And yet exposure is like really can be like really important and valuable. Doesn't More mean you shouldn't still be paid. No, for sure. Yeah, exactly. If, but a lot of- if somebody else is profiting from it, regardless, you deserve a cut. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea of intellectual property is just like fundamentally bullshit. And, you know, like the, if you take the Harlem Shake idea or whatever, you know, if, if you're, if you're like, you know, a monkey and you're watch, you watch another monkey go into a tree and pick a fruit and you learn the, the like method that they use to like acquire that thing. Do you owe that monkey forever for the fruit that you pick? No, no. You know, and it's and it's kind of the same thing. It's just like when it comes to art, you know, there's this like fundamental conflict uh, when art becomes a commodity and like the commodification of art. Right. Yeah, none of it would be a problem if it weren't for the capitalist system. You mm-hmm. know, like if in an ideal world, we would create something really good and then somebody could take that. Like say we write a song and then somebody else is like, oh, this is a cool song. I'm going to try to remix it blah, blah, put it out there. That's awesome. That's what a meme is. That's like what Richard Dawkins, when he thought of memes, that was the idea. Like He was more about ideas, but you put something out and then somebody else takes it, adds to it, changes it, and then puts that out. Somebody else does it. And it's just such a more productive way for humans to be creative. Mm -hmm. Um, But the only problem is that we got to eat. And if the thing buying our food is the profit we make from these things, but it doesn't have to be like that. You know, and I used to always be like, you know, before I was an actual musician, I was like, man, everybody should just be like open source all their stuff. You know, like you put out a song, it's no longer yours anymore um, until I needed money. (laughs) Yeah, but that like it doesn't mean that your conclusion was wrong. It just means that you are a musician in an exploitative system. Right. Yeah. And like the methods, you know, I think the application of intellectual property to music is is really interesting because you know, appropriation and like, you know, kind of like sampling techniques in, in like visual art, you know, if you look Mm -hmm. at like Warhol or any, you know, all the big like pop artists and stuff, it's just like straight up appropriation. And then that becomes like curation becomes the, the art in itself, Mm -hmm. you know, but in music, it doesn't seem like it's given the same, um, weight. There's like, there's all these, these, these legal rulings, you know, and, and like, I think the big intellectual property thing with music is, you know, MP3s, Napster, that whole thing, um, which I think is also fundamentally flawed. You know, if there's no like, it doesn't apply to, it's not like actual property because there's no scarcity. There's no, if you have an MP3, it doesn't stop me from having an MP3. Right, yeah. You know? Is is it stealing if you take something from somebody, but they still have it? Right. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, it's murky though. It's like, I don't know. You're stealing profit from the person who profited from giving it to the first or, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, so if you, if you oppose or if you support the idea of intellectual property for musicians under the idea that it takes money away from musicians, then you are ignoring the system around the music industry that, that like takes that, that profits off of the labor of music workers. Mm -hmm. So like if, if that is indeed your argument, then you need to be like, okay, well we need to like get rid of Spotify and 
all this stuff because that's actually how artists are exploited. It's not from yeah, people, exactly. you know, people download MP3s and they come to our show, pay us money. Mm-hmm. Spotify takes, you know, pay it pays us like point zero zero two cents yeah, per stream and yeah. Yeah, I want to go back to like whatever, 98, 99 and find Lars Ulrich (laughs) and just be like, hey, man, I know you're about to go up against Napster, but here and just like show him Spotify and like what the payout system is and everything is be like, maybe think about what you're doing. And think about it for like, you know, that not that Lars is like cool in (laughs) any way, but it just undermined like all credibility that he had, you know, and, and like he... I mean, this is what I was saying to Ben earlier is like, he's kind of just licking the boot of the record labels being like, you can't take their profits away. And like, was somehow like drank the Kool-Aid that it's his own profits, but like. Well, because Metallica was so ultra successful that it was their profits in the same way that like big pop musicians benefit the most from Spotify and labels. Mm -hmm. He was defending the system because Metallica was like, just like, hugely successful based on the model that was there so he was in the i feel like the big flaw with the whole metallica thing um and the a big reason that it felt so like tone deaf when it was going on is because he was framing it as like representing other musicians but he was really just representing himself and a few other like select bands you know as being like this hurts us but mm-hmm. I don't really care about like the like DIY band that isn't making any money either, you know. Pre Napster, it was like sampling was like the big issue around IP, as the, as they call it. Um, there's this band Negative Land. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Can you hear that? Give up. Can you hear that? Give up. Give up. Give up. Who uh, named themselves after a noise song who we're about to talk about at some length. But, um, they, I just read this book by them. It's not really a book. It's like a collection of documents where it's called, um, fair use, which just Google the term fair use and you'll understand what that's about. But, uh, they had this album called the letter U and the number two, where they were just kind of like shitting on U two. Yeah. It was like a, it was like a kind it was, you know, all of their stuff was these like, kind of like satirical parody like sound collage that you know took stuff from advertising and and took you know they're and they're kind of like had an anarchist um yeah you know viewpoint and like they're they did a thing with chumbawamba like the abcs of of anarchism or something but they're um letter u number two it was like it was the it was like a parody of i still can't find what i'm still haven't found what i'm looking for yeah and it had a picture of like the U2 bomber on the cover. Yeah. And it was just like a fucking profanity laden rant from Casey Kasem. The, <laughs> the quote was, these guys are from England and who gives a shit, even though they're from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the one interesting thing like from that book is 
you know, they go through lawyers. They talk to Brian Eno, who produced that U2 record. Yeah, because they were sued yeah. by, the, by, by U2. And then rather than taking their side, their label SST, which was mm-hmm. a cool label, you know, started by the dude from Black Flag, Greg mm-hmm. Ginn, um, like was not on their side. They were on like, you know, like we have nothing to do with this band or whatever. I, don't, I can't remember the exact shit that they said. Well, they but, ended up having to settle out of court because yeah. they were going to bankrupt the band and the label. Yeah, it's a pressure of the legal system. But they eventually, you know, got the ear of like U2 and their manager and U2 heard the song and thought it was funny and they like didn't care at all. But because of this like label structure, they couldn't do anything about the lawsuit because it, you know, it was out of their hands, Mm -hmm. even though they're the artists who, whose intellectual property was supposedly being stolen or defiled in some kind of way. I want a goddamn concerted effort to come out of a record that isn't a fucking up-tempo record every time I do a goddamn death dedication. This is a god- last goddamn time I want somebody to use his fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo and I gotta talk about a fucking dog dying. I gotta get the fuck with so much shit. Nobody's shithead again. Who knows? You might be destroyed a kid's town. What is this fucking ponderous, man? Ponderous. Fucking ponderous. This is American Top 30, right here on the radio station you grew up with. Music Radio 138. Oh, fuck. Um, I've there. I had a, a quote that I encountered that I really liked. I I actually didn't cite it, so I actually don't remember where I found it. But it says, The idea behind copyright is that people who create should receive adequate compensation for what they've done, but not every possible compensation. So it's like you get paid fairly for the work you do, but it doesn't mean that every single thing that generates off of what you made, you're entitled to. You know, Mm -hmm. so like, like we were saying before, you know, artists should be fairly compensated, but it doesn't mean that you can just you know, take every, take from everywhere. So the idea is like, say you build, you know, like a car for somebody and then somebody uses that car to make money. It'd be like saying, okay, I, I need some of that money too. It's this exact same, exact same idea. But also the ideas of parody and satire are like so important for a culture. Like, um, during the time that like, it was like late eighties into the nineties, there were, uh, when Negative Land was like doing other stuff, <clears throat> there's this big thing in the culture, like Adbusters magazine and like the Yes Men. Do you guys know about mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. They're like just these weird like culture jamming groups where they would like go buy a bunch of like Barbies that could talk from Toys R Us and then fill them with like weird subversive like mm. <laughs> anti corporate messages and then bring them back to Toys R Us Whoa. and like put them back on the shelves. Whoa. I mean, and the same kind of thing was done with that, uh, the letter U and the number two record. They like would go into record stores and just like sneak their record in there and like put like, I don't know, they they did all kinds of, you know, kind of illegal, cool stuff. Yeah. Cause like the, the foundation of the record labels lawsuit was like, there's a risk that this could be confused for a U2 record. It's like, yeah, there's because not, of the graphic design on the album yeah. cover. But like in terms of the actual content of the music, nobody would ever hear it and be like, damn, this is what you two's doing now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Oh, one note I had was talking about that. Did anybody see that movie Feels Bad, man? Mm-hmm. No, but okay. I had the original comic and like followed it in IRL. But no, I didn't see the movie. It's just kind of an interesting um I like take on the the intellectual property thing because it wasn't it wasn't like his art was co-opted by like a brand that was selling it to make money or whatever. It was like co-opted by like a large and like to- extremely toxic online community and he kind of tried to use the legal system. First he tried to use his own art to like reclaim it. You know, it was like, okay, I'm killing off the character and like drew him in a coffin. It's like, okay, he's dead. But then like it was just completely futile and it was like this really naive point of view where he's like, well, I created it, so I own it. And it's like, it's gone. Like it's so far gone for you. It doesn't matter at that point. Yeah, you're not even close to having any control over this thing, even though you drew the original image. It's just like it's taken on so much. But then he ended up using intellectual property laws to like take on these hate groups Hmm. Um, working with the ACLU who he had like originally um, been fighting with because they declared his character Pepe the Frog a hate symbol and he was like well what the fuck you know but it's like you're it's it's not you anymore yeah yeah so I guess that's the only case for people who in the history of the world where intellectual (laughs) property is cool (laughs) for people who might not know it was this dude Matt Fury right Mm mm-hmm and he had a comic where there was these little characters, and one of them was Pepe the Frog, which it's called you, Boys Club or something. Yeah, and you can just like Google any of these phrases and find the whole story, including that documentary. But fair use is basically when you can use copyrighted material, uh, but only in certain ways. Um, well, there's, I mean, copyright is such a huge subject because, like, yeah. back in the day when copyright was kind of like and I guess intellectual property in general was just invented. Like copyright law ran out after like 10 or 20 years. And then Disney was a big corporation mm-hmm. that kept on pushing that, uh, you know, and then it was like 30 years, then 50 years. And now it's like a hundred years or something, which is especially ironic considering they just like stole all of their Every story single storyline is, is stolen from, yeah, from a fairy tale and, and like bastardized too. Yeah. So like, you know, in Pinocchio, like he kills Jiminy Cricket in the mm-hmm. beginning, and then Jiminy Cricket is like the ghost mm-hmm. haunting him, but like they couldn't have that in the thing, yeah. or like you know. Yes. And that's the point. Like, what are what is the the folklore of our world right now? Buy it all, change it so it fits our narrative or worldview ideology, and, and then it just then, becomes the new folklore. They didn't even yeah. buy it though; they just straight up lifted all that shit. Now they buy, you know, Marvel and all that type yeah, of stuff. I don't know but how it it's I funny though, because this makes Disney sound uniquely evil, but that's like all of mythology and history is that. Well, yeah, but it's see, this is the whole this is the crux of this whole conversation for me is like it's fine to like use and steal and borrow, but when you start making tons of money off of somebody else's mm-hmm. labor, then it's that's when it gets fucked up. And also when you memify it, you know, change it a little bit to support i mean disney was literally a fascist like he was actually like a nazi supporter and stuff mm-hmm. and so if that's the guy memifying our folklore then i don't know perhaps attacking it with intellectual property rights isn't the best avenue but that shouldn't happen but i do think that dis- the distinction that you made about profit is is the main thing because you know if you look at folk music and exactly all this stuff it's like 
these appropriated melodies and stuff that run a course through mm-hmm. history and are passed down. But there's, you know, until you have like fucking Alan Lomax like going through and just like exploiting all these black musicians and, um, you but know. dude, he paid them in exposure bucks. <laughs> or the the original Dive's ocean art. Right. You know, same thing. Like some dude just went to Canada, bought the rights to all these prints that were like almost 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And then he's the dude giving us a hard time for yeah, using Yeah, he appropriated them yeah. so we couldn't appropriate them. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Double and reverse appropriation. You know, uh, like one of the first copyright things was the birthday song, Happy Birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just like a couple of school teacher sisters, I think, back in, I want to say like late 19th century. Now it's owned by Warner Brothers, right? I thought it was still their family owned it. Maybe no, I, I listened to a podcast like 10 years ago about it. Or I can't remember if it's Warner Brothers, but I do know that like in movies, that's why so frequently when they sing Happy Birthday, it's not the Happy Birthday yeah, song, it's some random ass song. Yeah, because it costs like, they have know, to like pay. 20 Gs just to use it. Yeah. I actually love that in movies though mm-hmm. and they sing because it's just like it's like a it's a moment where you really feel like you're watching a movie in a good way you're like oh mm. this is like an alternate reality that's being presented to me right now mm-hmm. i just love like on camera singing in movies mm. like period it's just it's so underused mm-hmm. i used to listen to a group called deep forest a lot my father yeah. was really into it in the 90s yeah that was that 90s shit my but, fifth grade teachers yeah, yeah. Into right it. yeah exactly it was like enigma or something like that was but, it only teachers that liked it yeah maybe it was just teacher music <laughs> um but that was a similar thing right they just went to either the brazilian rainforest or like somewhere in africa and just like recorded a bunch of people singing and then Put a bunch of techno like music on it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's and then, tight. I, still I think, they went, to I think they went all over the world because I know that there's the one that my fifth grade teacher always play had didgeridoos on it and I never heard a didgeridoo before. Yeah. Yeah. They put out a, at least two records that I know of. I only listened to the one. But yeah, it's really good. What's cool about it is that the wherever he went to record them, the males have like, they all sing in like really high falsetto and the women all sing in this like really low. Um, like the Pixies. Yeah, just like the Pixies, except <laughs> a lot different. <laughs> I always love that with the Pixies, how Black Francis is singing the high harmony and mm-hmm. Kim Deal singing the low one. It's such a such a cool reversal. Mm-hmm. There's so. Speaking of like house music, Noi has a song called House Music, which is funny. And also, the Pixies were they did a a song on a Noi tribute album. Hmm. Well, what song did they do? I don't remember. I, it's funny because there's two Noi tribute albums, which I haven't listened to. I never listen to those tribute albums. I don't know who listens to those. It's like they're never good. Mm-hmm. There Even was if, a Nirvana one that had a Thou version of Endless Nameless that's hmm. wildly good. I feel like there's there's bound to be like one good interpretation, mm-hmm. but it's rarely worth looking for it. Yeah. We've never got asked to do one of those. Somebody should ask us to do a tribute album. Yeah, yeah if anybody's making a tribute album, yeah, we'll hit us up we'll, on the we'll, Dive Podcast. Uh, at Gmail. Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Cole, you did do a, a Krautrock documentary. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's funny talking about Noi. I was like, this is probably going to come up. But um, I guess, yeah, like Noisy or Vice or some fucking terrible media outlet was like we're gonna do a documentary about kraut rock and we want to interview you and you do a cover of a noise song 
and it, it seemed cool. But I rewatched a documentary um, before we did this episode because I knew we were talking about Noi, and it's fucking kind of cringe, honestly. <laughs> it's just your part, you mean? Like or the whole thing? No, there's really cool parts where they have like, you know, founding members of Can, and they have like these, you know, people who are part of it, and then mm-hmm. they have like me and like the bass player from Interpol or something. And we're just like, yeah, man, it's just like minimal. <laughs> <laughs> and they, you, they took you to like a recording studio yeah. to like make this cover, but then they never play the cover. They never even sent it to me. I was like, can we, can <laughs> I hear it? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. I like played drums on it and whatever, but yeah, they don't, they don't play the thing. They just like show me making it. And it's just, you know, I think at the same moment I say like, it's about, you know, stripping away rock and roll to its absolute core things. And then I'm playing like a fucking singing saw with like a xylophone mallet, <laughs> <laughs> like a clip at the same time. True yeah. rock and roll. Just like, you know, the absolute core of like a fucking singing saw with a xylophone mallet and like a, <laughs> and they didn't have a wah pedal and they only had an auto wah. And so it's like another clip where I'm talking about it and I'm like, tuning the auto wah <laughs> it's so funny but like yeah i mean it, you know when you google or when you type kraut rock into youtube it's like the first thing that comes up and it's wow. kind of shameful but i don't know So last episode, we talked about The Cure, which is obviously a huge influence on this band. And I would say that uh, this band Noise also equally big influence on us. I, When we decided to do this record, I was super excited because um, this shit fucking rules. It's like yes. just such a cool ass band. Um, and I would like to say that they're underrated but like every famous musician ever is like noi is my favorite band yeah i know there's this i feel like i had this moment um where i kind of realized that when we were making deceiver and we went over to chill at um king size studios at rob schnaff's studio Mm -hmm. and rob was like yeah come in like just you know there's a band in here recording and they were literally talking about like the noy drum sound like yeah it's just close mic'd and dry and i was like oh my god this which is-, is rob produced elliot smith right mm-hmm. that's his his fame yep um 
so I'm just going to do a quick little overview of like the whole band's history, and then we can circle back around to that first record. Um, so they started in 1971, and they were it's two dudes, uh, Klaus Dinger, which I feel like that can't possibly be how you pronounce his name because it's very funny sounding, but you're going to hear it's me German say it name. M- many times. I think it's Dang- Danger. 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 I don't know. I heard him say it, the other guy. I heard Michael say it in an interview, and I thought he was saying Steiner. Danger. Well, Danger. I'm going to say Dinger. Just... I like Dinger. <laughs> so it's uh, Klaus Dinger and Michael Rother. Um, and they were originally in the band Kraftwerk. So, like, another cool thing is if you're going to talk about, like, Krautrock, this band touches, like, every corner of the Krautrock scene, mm-hmm. um, including being produced by... Um, Connie Plank. Yeah, Connie Plank, who some people say was, like, the third member of the band or whatever, which people love to say that yeah, about producers. Sure. But uh, It's never and, true. <laughs> he, uh, he produced... Autobahn, the Kraftwerk record. He produced uh, Harmonia Deluxe, great mm-hmm. record. And then like went on to produce like Eurythmics and some like new wave shit that I don't like too much. But. I give him the credit for being a third member. Like stuff like the reverse guitar and Hollow Gallo and stuff, that was his idea. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was completely joking. I think that producers have a very valuable skill set and <laughs> like can, can definitely bring ideas. Um, and... You know, for music that's so minimal, it is like really reliant on like conceptual ideas and right. like simple ideas and then just like executing them well. Especially if it's a studio band, you know, like Noi wasn't playing shows and it was just a studio project. Mm-hmm. Well, they did eventually, but at the beginning. So, but they were only in craft work for like six months. Um, but you can see them play with uh, when craft work was only them two and Florian Schneider. Uh, it's like one of my go-to YouTube videos of like Florian's playing the flute and then there's, you know, the other two dudes playing guitar and drums. It's incredibly sick. And it just sounds like Noi more than it sounds like Kraftwerk. Yeah. There's that one, it's not a BBC, is it a Peel session or something? You showed that to me. There's an early Kraftwerk live session that is oh, just yeah. sounds way more like Noi. That mm-hmm. black and white one where there's like all the kids sitting around. That's the one I'm talking yeah, about. That's a no. Beat Club, the German TV show. Which is, this is pro- it's probably from around the same time. This is like a like a radio recording. They went in and did some. I was session. watching that video, trying to imagine what I would think sitting there, having never heard anything like that before. And I think I would just be bored and confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he talks about that in interviews. Like a lot of our attempts at shows were like actual torture for the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, because they would improv for. Um, he was talking about like a, one of his later songs on Harmonia, <laughs> that it's a five-minute song where they just took the last five minutes of a two-hour live set. Mm-hmm. And he was like, we were just fishing for you know an hour and 55 minutes mm-hmm. and finally found something. Which is what those first two Kraftwerk records are, just like long explorations, mm-hmm. which really, it's not, not their finest work, but it is still super interesting. Um, so yeah, then after, it seems like uh, Klaus was maybe kind of a hard dude to get along with because all the bands dissolved due to like personal (laughs) issues Mm -hmm. or whatever that he was a part of, (laughs) including Noi, which we'll talk about. But uh, so after they left Kraftwerk, they made that first record, which has Hallow Gallo, Negative Land, some just like perfect, wonderful songs. And some weird songs too. Extremely weird. Yeah, really Lieber weird Honig is like I the, love such a bizarre 
like beautiful song. It just sounds so desperate and mm-hmm. and like intimate. Lieber Honig really, really sounds like like Lil Peep. That kind of like emotion, yeah. just hard on your sleeve, like really like bad. Where it's yeah. like you kind of like are uncomfortable listening to it, but you can't turn it off, and it's like really emotional. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. I love that like this record is just so like we already talked about how like it's everyone like every musician's yeah. favorite records. Iggy Pop, but, Bowie, Eno. But I feel like even more than like early Velvet Underground stuff that went on to be like massively influential, there's something like really strange about this record because it touches on so many different types of like moods and atmospheres. And there's like obviously like the the Krautrock like groove, like Hallow Gallo, but then there's also like really aggressive sounding stuff that you mentioned sounded like crass or something. Yeah, it's like crass guitar sound. There's there's honestly something like really this it sounds like an isolated guitar take from Loveless or something. Yeah. You know, just like yeah. abrasive and kind of like harmonically um uh um what's it called when it's uh amb- ambiguity, mm, yeah, harmonic yeah. ambiguity. Um, there's, you know, and, and like, it's weird how they're so isolated, you know, it's panned mm-hmm. in one ear so you can hear like pristinely this like kind of brash sound. It's, it's extremely interesting. And like the bass will be in one channel, right. you know, and like, then there's kind of two guitar overdubs that are just like happening in, um, in like each ear. And it like, it sounds like there's a lot of like ambient experimentation like i was listening and obviously like you hear like crowder influence in a lot of like contemporary guitar bands but then like some of the more like dark stuff like i can't remember which song it is it might be like wise and c or whatever but it sounds like women it's a similar like low like the drawl Mm -hmm. classic canadian rock band yeah classic canadian like kind of mathy but also noisy rock band that was like very short-lived unfortunately but similar mood but then also like i hear like i hear like animal collective in like the weird interludes where it's like sounds underwater and all these like bubbling sounds and everything it's just like the whole record is kind of just like a fuck you to any sort of like genre Mm -hmm. they just do really whatever they want to do well they have a pretty small discography Mm -hmm. so let's just run through it real quick and then uh we'll circle back around to the first record sure so this speaking of like weird experimentation like the second record they from what which I is just called two. Yeah. So tight. Which, yeah, their fourth record was also just called four, but then later got changed to 86, 86. or something. Yeah. But uh, the second record, they recorded some stuff and then like ran out of money or something. And so the second half of the record is just them taking those songs and then like touching the tape machine and making it warble or like they put like a vinyl copy of the record, like off center on the turntable. So it's like, yeah. And, but also like sped it up, Mm -hmm. you know, or like the, 
they were saying that like while they were recording that, like the sped up one, the dude was just like kicking the turntable <laughs> just to like be punk, I guess. I, I mean, you can hear him talking too, like mm-hmm. just like it's this, a lot like if you, have, you guys ever listen to the Faust tapes mm-hmm. that are just like you know same era German band, um, you know they had like kind of traditional like rock and pop song structure sometimes, but then there's just this thing called the Faust tapes that's like there's one called Four Hands on a Piano and it's just like a bunch of <laughs> and like weird kind of sonic experiments like yeah. that mm-hmm. that you can that I feel like that's like completely in line with like actual experiment. I feel like yeah. experimental music now means like a certain genre with a certain sound, but right. like actual experimental music where they're experimenting. Yeah. You know, it's kind of seems rare today. Cause they, their whole thing. And like my favorite thing about Noi was just the concept of like, or their mission statement. Like we're in post-war Germany, like 20 years after Hitler, we don't want to make anything like proud German music or right. anything like that. But we also don't necessarily want to copy the Brits or Americans you know, like everybody else is doing. So we just literally have to think of something new, you know, like our only inspiration can be like space because like there's no, nothing. Should we talk a little bit about like the protest movement that it, that it came out of that this stuff came out of? And, um, you know, it, it was like, you know, post-war Germany, like in 68, there was, uh, or 67, there was a college student that got murdered by the cops and started this, um, big protest movement that, there was like this idea of of like recentering German history. Like it was called. There's a German word for it, Verengenheitsbewegung, which is like coming Perfect. to terms with the past. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that was like a big victory. The protest movement was it like brought that conversation to mm-hmm. to the forefront of of um, like German nationalism or German ideology. Which is crazy to think that it hadn't for twenty years. Right. You know, there he was talking about like. Your teacher, you know, there was like a bunch of people who were Nazis who you couldn't just Nuremberg, you know, they were just like teachers or doctors or, or like just, political figures. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like could, establishment. Yeah. And they had to stay in their role. Otherwise, society would have completely collapsed. And so there were still Nazis around. It's just they were not saying it out loud. You know, you weren't allowed to mention Hitler, even though 10 years earlier, you know, you were all about it and everybody knows that. And it's amazing. Like, I. I can't imagine what that would be like, just living in that society, especially like, you know, their age. They were just teenagers born around the time of the war. Uh-huh. And so you're just like growing up in this, like, what is the history of our country? Oh, we don't talk about it. Yeah. You know, and like, what kind of stuff would you create with that in mind? Well, I feel like a lot of like, you know, Krautrock or Cosmish or whatever just gets lumped into like an extension of the psychedelic movement and Mm -hmm. it's really not because it was at the same time yeah uh, as you know like but it's like it's interesting to think about you know the summer of love like you know and like think about you know what it was like for black people during that same time Mm -hmm. it's like it's not a summer of love at all it's like fucking segregation like you know civil rights Mm -hmm. um protests and like you know it's not it's it's yeah. just so bizarre that it's contextualized as like the summer of love because it's it's not that for most people um and this seemed like a actual reckoning with like the the um institutions and and like systems that that led them to where they were at it wasn't like i feel like the american version of psychedelia was like very rose colored and this is like yeah. you know yeah, based more in anger like, yeah and edgy not edginess but like musical edginess where they're like actually like we were just saying like experimenting doing weird shit yeah mm-hmm. rather than just playing blues 
you know, rip off. Yeah, like appropriated music, music yeah, exactly. during the, that. It's, like, it's really dark when you think of it that way. Yeah. Like, okay, we're appropriating black music during the peak of segregation and <laughs> um, civil rights protests and like all good, yeah. summer of love. And we just discovered tape delay. Right, yeah. <laughs> But that's why I kind of respect the Rolling Stones because their first U.S. tour was literally a mission to solve that. They were like, these Americans are listening to black people's music without giving them credit. They think that like these white dudes are coming up with it like Elvis and them. And so they went over and were like, hey, this is a Bo Diddley song. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's from here. He's still playing shows. Go buy his record. <laughs> yeah. You know, shit like that. Um, so I like that. dive podcast all right so uh like i was saying before about uh klaus maybe being a little prickly and hard to get along with the third record 75 which i really love this record especially mm -hmm. yeah, so it's my new fave after like researching for this it's kind of like that uh outcast record um speaker box and the love below where like half the record is one dude and half mm -hmm. is the other dude i really like the rother half it's like I mean, they're both great. Um, the first half is like real ambient, nice to listen to, like piano and drums a lot. And the second half is just like straight up punk as fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rother had like the punk streak, like the like the Dusseldorf, La Dusseldorf mm -hmm. project was him only, right? Or was it both of them? No, I think uh, Rother was like the ambient dude and, and Dinger was uh, the drummer who was just like, you know, let's play one chord on the guitar and yeah. a, a real straight beat. Show my chops. But they were both drummers, right? Because that was the other guy, um, Rother. He was, when he joined Kraftwerk, it was as a drummer. I think Dinger was the drummer of, uh, maybe of I'm confused. Krautrock. I mean, of <laughs> Kraftwerk. Please cut that. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah, that's right. Even the word Krautrock is... It was like assigned to them by Brit rock, you know, like journalists and shit. It's kind of yeah. like shoegaze, where it was like disparaging, yeah. But then, yeah. like, gradually became, you know, like the like Julian Cope wrote like the 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 Kraut Kraut rock sampler book, which was mm -hmm. like kind of like the definitive. It's just it, it's more disparaging, I think, than shoegaze in that it's like they were trying to remove themselves from the German identity, and yeah. it's like oh fucking Krauts, yeah, they're yeah. they're German. That's mainly what they are is German. <laughs> yeah. But I thought it was I thought it was embraced by the bands. Yeah, they thought it was funny, I think. Yeah. Oh really? But there there are a couple instances of them trying to like, you know, the like motoric beat. They were like, oh, it's called the Apache beat. Or mm -hmm. like different thing different examples of them like throughout the course of their career, mm -hmm. like trying to, you know, rename the this is a bit like you can't do that. So it seems like after that record, their the two guys' relationship kind of started to fall apart. And then I, did Noi 4 even come out? No, then? I think it was scrapped. Yeah. That record is so fucking good, but like bizarre. It's I bizarre. used to listen to it all the time. They um, reformed for that one though. In yeah. the 80s though. Like yeah. they took a really long break. Yeah, they took a long break. But I think it didn't come out for like a bunch of years. Yeah, I think they did the sessions and then later were like, let's let's try this again. Yeah, and it wasn't like they had a falling out really either. It's, they never really got along. Yeah. It's just that they had a really respectable working relationship where it's mm -hmm. like, all right, I know that you're bringing this to the table and I know I can't do that. And 
the reverse is true. And so they could work together, no problem. It was just every other thing. They were just like, I can't be around you. Sorry, dude. But during that time, Rother was uh, playing with that band Cluster. I always called them Kluster just because they're German. I don't know which one is correct. I don't know. But they also, there was a version with a K, a version with a C, and Mm -hmm. a version with a Q. But anyway, I think this first, whatever, Rother, when he was playing with Kluster, they called it Harmonia. Mm-hmm. And that record, uh, Music Von Harmonia, Ooh, One incredible. of the best albums ever made. It's mm-hmm. just good. Yeah. It's insane. And, you know, he did that while at the same time making that last, or not the last, but the, the 75 Neue record. And then, you know, since then, Rother has been putting out solo records. He's got a lot of really good ones. He was putting out solo records during that time too, though. Mm -hmm. Because there's this one that I listened to called Flamin Terzin, which was like an EP they put out in 77, I think. That's just like really like optimistic, like Ebo guitar shit. Yeah. It's like very, it's like super hopeful version of Noi or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, that he was kind of like the the sunnier guy. Um, Which is funny because the guitar ideas on the first Noi record are like pretty angry at times. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. He was also an angry person. Like he, in like what we were talking about, like coming out of um, the political movement in the 60s yeah. and stuff, like he was, he actually reminds me a lot of my father, you know, just like born in like whatever America in the forties and everybody thinks like, Oh, okay. He's going to class, like dresses well and everything. He's like a nice dude. He's going to be great. And then sixties happen, hair grows long, you know, you're a conscientious objector all of a sudden and everybody's like, you had so much potential. What are you doing? You know? And he was just like, how yeah, dare you not want to die? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't want to go kill For people. Empire. You're a coward. You know? And, it, and it's just that, like just saying, I'm not going to go kill anybody. And that's that you know, is sort of like the where he was in his life when he was starting all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, as we were saying, then in the 80s, they kind of came back. And I Wikipedia kind of alluded to that they wanted to do something more commercial with that 86 album, which... I mean, it is. It is, but it's still very weird. It's like extremely 80s. So I think like with our current context listening to it it just sounds bizarre because a lot of you know 80s production is just so fucking weird Mm -hmm. like danny and i were driving in the car and it was playing like you know like don't you want me baby or some some like shitty radio song i was like this is the we i can't believe this was like mainstream radio it just Mm. sounds weirdly problematic lyrics in that song too anyway (laughs) but then so like this is also when the cd was invented and stuff but because Klaus and Michael like weren't getting along, uh, there was none of that shit got released on CD till 2001. Hmm. So during the whole 90s, though, Klaus was like licensing and putting out like bootlegs and stuff and like weird Japanese label only stuff without Michael's permission. Yeah, he or got knowledge. the Noi name. Yeah, and was just doing a while. I actually thought the Noi 86 record was that, and I was like, oh, this. You know, it's just one of the guys, but like, it's fucking crazy. And then mm-hmm. I learned last night that it was actually the two of them. And then like, there's way more shit that he's putting out under Noi. Yeah. So that's classic think, Brian Wilson, Mike Love dynamic. Yeah. Which, and I think it's um, 
understandable that you would like not get along with someone who's just like stealing your work and <laughs> making money off it. <laughs> David Gilmore, Roger Waters. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's a story as old as time, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Klaus died in 2008. So that put an end to all of that. Which, um, then there was a compilation album, like we were talking about before, uh, one of those tribute albums in 2009 that had like Oasis and Primal Scream and like a bunch of bands on it. I, I hear the Primal Scream makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, Tom York said that it, it was his favorite band and I mean, just insanely influential to like everything that we know now in rock music. Mm-hmm. But so that's like their story and their discography. But we could circle back around to that first record and really the first song in the first record, Hallow Gallo. Something we've talked about a lot in our band, Dive, is the fill. Dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, pick it up, pick it up. Which is used in that song a lot, but then we started talking about it. It was like, oh, you know, that's the there, there fill from that Radiohead song. And then we realized it's used, you know, a lot. I think part of the the reason that Phil resonates and a, a lot of the musical ideas on Hallow Gallo in particular, I think a lot of people's understanding of Krautrock is Hallow Gallo, mm-hmm. even though like the genre is not really tied to that. It's way more experimental yeah. and diverse. But for some reason, like the musical ideas on Hallow Gallo are so simple. There's like the beat in general, the type of like Michael Rother, like well, I don't know what scale he's playing out of, but like doom dee dee, like that there's like a sound to the guitar and then you have these like drum fills and bass fills that are like so digestible and just like slot into like any moment of the jam. And I think that's part of the reason that, that Halagalo resonates so much with people. Cause it's like 10 minutes long and like, you know what the, you know, the whole vibe within like 30 seconds, but for some reason, like the entire song is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause all the things that are the hooks are not like traditionally hooks yeah. in music, you know, like the, you can only in popular music, you can only name a couple songs where the drum fill is like the big hook. Mm-hmm. Totally. And the guitar is just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like an extension of the drums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The guitar is doing like drum fills. Yeah. And then, yeah. Like Bailey was saying, that backwards guitar is going throughout the entire track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was their method. They would just do drums and like one idea on loop on a guitar or something, and then just take turns adding shit to it and seeing if it sticks, you know? And the reason that uh, two, why they had to do that experimental shit <clears throat> on side B was because it wasn't that they ran out of money, or I guess they did run out of money, but they ran out of studio time because they were trying to use a 16 track 
you know, they had used a 4A tracker or whatever on the first one. But now he's got more options, so they're taking more time throwing shit on top of it. And then they realize, like, fuck, we have one day left, and we have only a half of a record. Well, and they used some of their advance to buy the new gear. Yeah. That was, oh, like, going into it, they were like, we want, we want to try new things. So they spent, and at that time, like, a 16-track and those, like, new instruments were probably extremely expensive. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And their advance couldn't have been, like, their first record only sold 30,000 copies. Which yeah. is still insane to me. Like, that's, uh, for the time... Not a lot, but considering what it sounds like and how it's how experimental it is, it's mm-hmm. like it seems like a lot of records. probably like the total number of records that we've sold for all three albums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, no, that's not true. <laughs> but <laughs> no clue. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, Google but, it, bro. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's like the their narrative is like nobody fucked with them at first, but then it became cool. You know, like your favorite band's favorite band type yeah. stuff and. Like Bowie, for example, tried to get him to open for him on tour, and they turned it down. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, like you know, I think the 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 David Bowie like Berlin trilogy is like pretty storied and has been like spoken mm. about by everybody in history. And there's no real point in talking about it. But I think that it probably was an entry point for a lot of people. And you know, Bowie did the same. Like uh, Low is like structured the same way, where the front half of the record is like front loaded with all these pop songs, and then like the second half of the record is just these like long synth exploration Mm -hmm. things and for such a like massively popular record it's like you know pretty out there he also said he like bought those synths and the first thing he did was like throw away the owner's manual and was like i don't want to know how to use these synths i just want (laughs) to figure it out i don't have much luck with that method (laughs) it depends on the synth um Another fill, drum fill that that we use all the time that I don't know, I, like I don't think our reference point is this, but is the like double crash, like dun dun dun, uh-huh. is mm-hmm. is just like all over yep. Hallow Gallo. They do that in the uh, in that YouTube video too of them playing on that German TV show. Mm. The double crash, the double crash. Wait, did we say that we use the fill in Blankenship? No, we didn't. Yeah, that's what we meant by the fill. Yeah, well, it's in Blankenship, but it's also in Bent. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the true. original, and yeah, it's it in um, the title track off the second record, which was like we had finished making the second record, and then I got asked to do that, um, mm-hmm. you know, dumb or whatever, cool, depending <laughs> on your perspective. Krautrock uh, documentary and covered Hallow Gallo. It's like, whoa, this is so sick and then just straight up tried to recreate it backwards guitars mm-hmm. you know the entire thing and that that was one where yeah i was obsessed with the digga fill and it's definitely in there it's in you put because colin played drums on bent yeah mm-hmm. for those who don't that know. was like that was like my big contribution to that song i came in and i was like there was like a dave Grohl fill and then the the, the they're there Noi Phil, where I was like, I'm going to just put these into the song. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to do it. Um, One thing I want to say about Halo Gallo in particular, but also like just the whole like ethos of of Noi that I pick up on that is like very similar to how we operate as a band is that like a lot of times when you're listening, there's no like lead instrument or like the lead instrument will be like unconventional where it'll be like the bass or the drum part is what you're listening for. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Halogallo in particular 
it just washes over you in the same way that a lot of our music washes over you. And I, I really enjoy listening to it because it it sounds like everyone on the recording, whether or not it was two people or whatever, it just sounds like there's like this push and pull of ideas that is like definitely outside of the ordinary in terms of like there being like a lead instrument in a rock band. And uh, I've really enjoyed like, like I really liked making Deceiver because of that. Cause we made like a really like, we made like a rock album, but it still has that same kind of approach where like nothing is like fighting for the attention in the mm-hmm. arrangements and everything. Yeah. I, I really like that. A lot of really great albums you can kind of just put on at a dinner party or something. And everyone's like, Oh, this is good. What is this? Or you can like put headphones on and dive into it and like listen for those details yeah. and stuff. Like, you can kind of get out of it whatever you need. Mm-hmm. It can be like a really detailed personal experience or it can just be like wash background music. Yeah. Yeah, an interesting thing about, you know, when a, when music has no lead instrument, they kind of all become lead instruments, you mm-hmm. know? So when when you're listening to it, it's just you're focused so heavily on things that you're not usually focused on, like the rhythmic side of a guitar or like the, um, you know, the, like the drum parts in particular, which is very cool. That's the coolest. I think I remember like growing up, learning how to play music and playing in like garage rock or blues rock bands. When I was younger. I was really turned off by like the, like the defined roles of each musician. And so it's been really fun to make the kind of music we make where it's like way more, open-ended and you can like depending on the type of song we're playing or like the moment in the song we each can like push and like or pull back and it just has this like great like dynamic to it yeah that's true like you know buffalo springfield or something it was like neil young is like the rhythm guitar and then there's like the lead you know like yeah i feel like the even just in bands that had two guitars it was like one was rhythm one was lead right which i feel like is a silly concept now I I enjoy listening to music like that. Sure. It's just for like my like own personal satisfaction in playing like rock and roll or whatever. It's much more fun to make the kind of music we make. Um partially just cuz like, you know, there's less pressure on all of us to be like extremely good at our instrument or something. <laughs> we can just like do do less, you know? Mhm. Cuz I feel like you know, a lot of times when you're creating role rules and like defining roles, it's just like it ends up hurting the song because every song needs to have these like separation of like, okay, well, you know, we just did the chorus and now there has to be like a guitar solo mm-hmm. and like, you know, let let him let him have his, his moment or whatever. But like it's not the best thing for a song, like basically ever. Yeah, it's weird. It's like they figured out a formula for like this is, you know, three minutes, 30 seconds, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, you know, like this is the formula, follow it. And the same thing is true in like a lot of creative arts, you know, like um, uh, like writing a script for a movie or something. If you give a script to a director, be like, hey, check out my script. They'll turn to the 50th page or the 60th page to look at what happens on the hour mark. Right. And if it's not like a big event, then he'll throw your thing out. Really? You know? If, you know, if it doesn't follow that formula then it's not worth looking at because they've already figured out the secret. Like, this is how you write a song. This is how you write a movie. This is how you write a book. And trying to break out of that is, 
like it's cool you know people should do that but there's a reason that the formula is the formula you know it's like you have to be aware of it before you can break the rules yeah the formula can be art in itself you Mm -hmm. know i think that that's like kind of how like so much visual art it just becomes like outsourced and mechanized by like you know an artist will have just a factory of people following the format or the you know the formula and the rules and it still is that artist's art that's to me what's so hard about making art in the year 2020 though is like all of these conventions have been broken and put back together like a million times already so it's not like anyone listens to a song and they're like that song didn't have a bridge whoa (laughs) or like even with visual art you know there's like color theory and all this shit but it's like we've already had Pollock you know 50 years ago Mm -hmm. and all this shit that's Mm -hmm. the formulas now it's almost I mean this is I feel like a dumb statement maybe, but like it's almost more revolutionary to like go back to the formula. Right, yeah. I was thinking, because I've been staring at this Walt Whitman book behind Colin's head on the bookshelf all episode. Um, but that's that was him. You know, he was like, all right, let's not rhyme poetry anymore. And I was like, you can't do that. You know, he's breaking the rules, breaking the formula. Fast forward 100 years, and that's the formula. And if I go out, if I was in a poetry workshop and I submitted a poem that rhymed or, you know, it's in some sort of meter and stuff, they would laugh at it, you know? And it's like, it's more badass to now go back to the original formula. I like that. I feel like there that's probably a common thread in art history, like going away from tradition and, and then coming back to it. And each time you go back and forth, you're like bringing new information from each extreme of the approach. Mm-hmm. It's more memifying. Yeah, like art always has periods of radicalism, you know? And then like the question... Um, is like, where do you go after a period of radicalism? Mm. Which, what do you think that like the late 60s, early 70s crowd period, was that, that was like the move away from the formula? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? that was the move away from blues rock. Yeah. yeah. Like specifically blues, you know, they had the rule, no blues. And like, that was basically the rule of the band. It's kind of the rule of dive too. That is also a rule I recall. <laughs> yeah which was good for me having studied blues guitar for so long. <laughs> the Dive Podcast. Um, the, yeah, the, the David Graeber thing about like what you do after a period of radicalism in art is like, you know, there's like two types of, radicalism is like political and then like formal or uh, uh, like the form you know like the if the form is radical and so like the options are either to like adopt the other form of radicalism and do both or do the other one or neither what's an example of a radical form like the situationless situationist situationist which is what it's do you want to, do you know more than me? Uh, it's like Guy Debord, that, uh, book, um, society of the spectacle and kind of like deconstructing everything in culture as a spectacle, something where you don't participate. You just like look at it. Mm. Um, you know, the advent of television and all that shit. I, I don't actually know that much about it. I know it's cool. And it, it's also like, um, Dadaism was kind of the precursor to situationism of mm-hmm. just like, Let's just throw this all in the trash. Let's say this toilet is a piece of art. Yeah. Um, literally. 
which was like the beginning of like the like managerialism that I was talking about, which I don't necessarily think is like a, a good thing at all. You know, like artists outsourcing their art and creating like factories for. No, but it is interesting because like, you know, I think Damien Hurst is like the huge example of that, of like people are like, well, he doesn't actually like make his art. He just like hires people to do his art. But it's like, it's still his idea. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's like, how Jay-Z makes a record. This is like, have you ever read that Walter Benjamin uh, essay, The Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction? No. It's like a critical theory essay about how art definitively changed uh, post-industrial revolution when everything was like um, mass-produced. That was Warhol's like, big statement, right? Yeah, it's the beginning of that. Um, because previously, like for sculpture, for example, talking about the, I think Cole, you mentioned something about it, but there were rules about like how many like authentic pieces could be like claimed or sold. So like Rodin, I think he had all these like assistants who would like make his sculptures, like a French sculptor. And he could only have eight be sold as like authentic copies or not even copies, like original works. Anything beyond that, like, would be disqualified for uh, sale in a gallery. Even or though those eight were made by his employees. Yeah, exactly. Because like their goal is to create like an artificial scarcity. Yeah. Demand. So like if you yeah. flood the flood the the market with hell of Rodin sculptures, then they're worth nothing. So right. you like create like a, an artificial scarcity. I I think the other interesting thing about um about like the conversation we're having about um you know managerialism and shit is it like we were talking about before, like reframing curation as being a type of art in itself, mm -hmm. which is like a slippery slope of like increase, like adding increasing numbers of middlemen into the equation. And then they are like convinced themselves that they are the artists and it like further removes the artist right. from the consumer. And they, they like, you know, they, they define what consumption is. And then they define what art is because they're the wealthy class, they're the consumers. And then it like, you know, it just like disenfranchises the artist. It's like, it's like a slippery slope that always ends up bad for the artist. I've been thinking a lot recently about like bootlegging as praxis. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it's, I think bootlegging, especially luxury brands is one of the coolest things that you can do yeah, because it democratizes this, like you were saying, this artificial scarcity it's like there's nothing actually that special about this stuff and especially this stupid brand mm -hmm. that and anyone could they just throw like, them away too if nobody buys these like yeah high brand shit they throw them away to further the artificial scarcity mm -hmm. yeah like a good example of it is a family member of mine was a sculptor in the 60s and he passed away a couple years ago and my dad um has his house until they sell it or whatever. And the backyard is just like a sculpture graveyard of sculptures that he made, but they can never sell because there has to be like, there can only be a specific number. So there's just this like field that's just full of these like amazing sculptures and they're just going to rest. But then Some eventually Etsy. though. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I do. I want to bring up one thing just in terms of like, Art being reproduced, bootlegging. Have, have you ever seen uh, Ringo Starr's paintings? 
he did some of his own like cover artwork, right? Yeah, but he makes these paintings. My girlfriend Megan showed me last night. They're so fucking funny. He does them for fun on tour. He makes these paintings in MS Paint <laughs> that are so stupid looking. Like it's it's really profound how dumb they are. But they get sold for like two thousand dollars. Yeah. But online on Google, there's high res images of it, and there's literally there would be no difference between buying it from him and just printing it out yeah. because it's an MS Paint thing. It's like, you know what I mean? It's different than like a scan of a photo mm-hmm. or a scan of a painting or something like that. It's literally just the MS Paint file like reproduced mm-hmm. on Google. You can just print it out. It's, you could probably recreate the entire thing yourself. Right, yeah. They're <laughs> really, sure. really funny. It's, I mean, I'm that's like the now. whole conversation in, in the movie we were talking about before, Feels Good Man with the... Uh, the 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 cryptocurrencies that mm. they they started with like Pepe coin or some shit where they're like selling these like rare Pepe's or some shit where there's like one of them and some dude paid all this money for it or whatever but it's literally just you know artificial scarcity and mm-hmm, it creates yeah. this like value because there's demand with a bunch of like extremely stupid people. Yeah, I'd say most infamously it was when um, Screlly bought the Wu-Tang record. Oh, yeah. Like, Rizzo is like, I should do what artists do. I'll just make one copy of this and sell it for a million bucks. And he did, and Screlly bought it. Martin Screlly, the fucking pharma bro who who jacked up the price of um, right. uh, whatever that, that drug was that was used to treat like <laughs> in, lupus. He's in something. prison now, but not for that, right? Yeah, they always get him on like some tax fraud or something. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, that's that's what really hurts the man. Yeah, because you can't condemn what he was doing without condemning the entire pharmaceutical right, yeah, industry. Exactly. So it's like, you know, yeah, he's jacking up the price, but like, look at insulin prices over the past right, ten years. Yeah. It's just because Martin Scully was a face, and not only was he a face, he was yeah, a he proud was face. Proud of it. Yeah. He was a heel. He was yeah, totally. literally playing a heel. Yeah. Well, um, you guys want to try to play some music with? Thinking of our forefathers, Noi. I would love to. <laughs> we do that like every time we play music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like hard to get away from. Like, okay, how right. about this song has like chord changes? Cause it's just like, it's just A, it's extremely fun. But like B, good, you know, fun things come come out of it. Yeah. So I don't know. Who knows what we'll come up with. I do think it would be cool to try to, we always reference like Hello Gallo, which is like more positive sounding. It would be cool to try to reference negative land. Mm-hmm. Keep it a little bit darker, which is like what we've been doing recently anyway.